Morena and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey. This is my daily podcast that goes out with my email newsletter for subscribers every weekday morning on my substack, The Kaka. Uh, today I want to talk about housing and the call from the Human Rights Commissioner, Paul Hunt, for the government to bring in a new rent freeze. Remember there was a six-month rent freeze in the first year of COVID and to increase the accommodation supplement because it hasn't been adjusted for higher rents in six years. And it's clear from the numbers of people accessing things like food banks and emergency support payments from MSD that there is an enormous amount of rental stress out there. And remember that New Zealand has the highest proportion of people in rental stress in the OECD. And the government has responded. Uh, Megan Woods came out uh, last night with a statement to Paul Hunt, responding to his concerns and asking for a meeting. He wrote in a letter to Paul Hunt uh, with a list of all of the things that the government is doing it says to improve uh, affordability and quality for renters and for buyers. And it listed all the things that we're all quite familiar with, including the $3.8 billion uh, infrastructure fund, which the government uses to make grants and loans to councils so that they can uh, build the infrastructure, particularly the pipes and roads, for new housing. Uh, there is the government's moves to uh, stop landlords from claiming interest uh, for tax purposes and the um, tax break, which means that built to rent providers of uh, blocks of flats of more than 20 uh, can uh, uh, still claim uh, interest as a taxable expense, effectively a tax break for them. Uh, plus various other moves to try to improve housing affordability along the lines of extending the Brightline test and uh, also funding a significant Kanga Ora building program. But the missing link in all of this is any sense of uh, a measure of success, either as a target or as some sort of metric by which to judge or to assess the effectiveness of any of the list of measures that I talked about earlier. This is something we've repeatedly asked the government for and we look for in any official advice that comes out from the various agencies who are looking at this, including Housing and Urban Development, MB, Reserve Bank and Treasury and none of them have yet come up with any sort of official target or measure of affordability. The Human Rights Commission, rightly, has looked at the threshold for renters' affordability, and the accepted threshold is around about 30% of disposable income. So if you're spending more than 30% of your disposable income on rent, you're deemed to be in a potentially stressful situation. And we know that more than 50% of the people in the lowest quintile for income in New Zealand, so our poorest 20%, 
more than half of them are spending more than 40% of their disposable income on rent. That is the highest share of what's called rent overburden in the OECD. And you can see a chart uh, for that in today's email newsletter. So 30% seems like a reasonable threshold for affordability for rent. And we're obviously well away from achieving that. There are other measures that have been used by others and referred to in official reports over the years for, in particular, house buying affordability. So the general um, measure is that anything over three times income for a house is deemed to be too expensive in the long run, uh, uh, given previous neutral measures for interest rates. Now, over the last 20 or 30 years, those neutral levels, levels for interest rates have dropped in some sort of substantial and structural way, which has allowed people obviously to borrow more to buy a house. And therefore the three number has crept up in various measures to four and five. So the previous national government uh, under Nick Smith as housing minister used four as a multiple that it wrote into various agreements with councils for opening up special housing areas. And five is the number that Auckland Council has used in previous estimates or made suggestions about affordability targets. But the government itself has been very reluctant to come up with a number by which it could be judged. And I think that's partly because of the failure of the 100,000 target for the number of Kiwi build houses to be built by the Labour government within 10 years. That has been shelved and was in the first term. And the reason for, I think, that failure was the government's lack of understanding of its own fiscal rules, which uh, restricted the government from really going after that 100,000 target, and which I think cost Phil Twyford his job. Uh, that's because the um, then opposition, Labour Party and the Green Party, agreed to a set of fiscal responsibility rules which limited the government to uh, pushing gross debt under 20% of GDP and to ensure that government spending and, and taxes would, would never rise too much above 30% of GDP. That, in effect, rules out any sort of tax increase or higher debt to pay for the infrastructure for housing. And that was the original sin of this Labour government. And um, it's not too uh, unusual in that both Labour and National have an effective bipartisan fiscal guidelines policy, if you like, of uh, not increasing government revenue to GDP beyond about 30% of GDP, which is significantly lower than in other countries, and not increasing the new measure of government debt, net debt, beyond 30% of GDP, which is where it currently is. That stops the government from using its balance sheet or using taxes to pay for the infrastructure needed for the supply shock that's required to get housing down and keep it down in any sort of functional and sustainable way. So we engage in the usual charade of magical thinking and 
performative statements, vague things, lists saying what is being done and no progress or measure of success or accountability when it comes to housing affordability. That's my view, but I wanted to talk to the Human Rights Commission about its ongoing housing inquiry and uh, how it's connected to the Waitangi Tribunal's current housing inquiry. So I went and had a chat to the Human Rights Commission. Here's an interview I had yesterday with V Blackwood, who is the Human Rights Commission's housing inquiry manager. Welcome to the Kaka, another podcast where we talk about housing affordability, climate change and uh, child poverty reduction. And I'm here at the Human Rights Commission with V Blackwood, who is the Human Rights Commission's Housing Inquiry uh, Manager. V, thank you very much for being on the Kaka. Yeah, kia ora. Thank you for having me. Tell us about what the Human Rights Commission is saying today on the issue of housing and rents and the accommodation supplement. Mm. What we're saying uh, today is that um, too many New Zealanders are sacrificing their fundamental human rights to pay the rent, going without food, um, going without heating, all of those things that you would expect that people in New Zealand shouldn't have to make sacrifices on. So what we're calling for is for the government to reinstate an immediate freeze on rent increases. Not a freeze on rent, just a freeze to stop rents increasing. Um, That's a very important distinction to make. And we're simultaneously calling for the government to immediately increase the amount of accommodation supplement to those on the lowest incomes as a way to support them um, meeting their rental or housing costs. So why now? What's the problem to solve? This has been a problem for years, obviously. Um, We're not saying that this has come out of the blue. We've seen the fact that rents have increased year on year, far outstripping incomes, outstripping inflation. But with the current cost of living crisis, we're really seeing that bite for people in the most vulnerable positions. New Zealand has expensive housing, often to buy, but it's not always been obvious that our rents are expensive too. Tell us um, how much New Zealanders are paying relative to disposable income and whether that's out of line with the past and what we see overseas. Mm. Um, New Zealand does have really expensive housing, as you say, both to buy and to rent. What we are seeing, though, um, through a series of data indicators that we're calling measuring progress, we've seen that um, rental unaffordability is getting worse over time. Um, Renters are more likely than homeowners to find their housing costs unaffordable. But that said, if you're a renter, it's getting much more difficult as well to save for that first home deposit. So you're really caught in a catch-22 position. Worldwide or internationally, um, guidance on what is considered affordable in terms of housing costs is that you should be spending no more than 30% of your household income after tax on your housing costs. But the data that we released in December 2021, so just about um, six or eight months ago, showed that almost half of New Zealanders are paying 30% or more of their income after tax 
on renting uh, on housing costs, and that's mostly renters. And how does that compare um, overall with people who own their own homes? Uh, it's significantly higher for renters than it is for people who own their own homes. Um, we see that very clearly in the data, and we've got that available on our website as well at Measuring Progress. The OECD also made a point in its most recent report in New Zealand uh, in saying that um, those in the lowest income quintile in New Zealand are, uh, have the highest proportion who are spending more than 50% of their disposable income on rent in the OECD. Is that right? That's exactly right. And we've actually got that information um, just today from our data specialists who collated that for me. Um, what it shows is that um, those who are in vulnerable groups, that includes beneficiaries, Māori and lowest expenditure groups, um, rent makes up a much bigger part of their expenditure. It also shows, and I asked them to collate this because of the comparison between rent and affording food, um, it shows that although people in the lowest expenditure quartile might spend around the same proportion of their income on food, in real dollar amounts that translates to far less money per person, so they're spending the same percentage of their income on food, but that doesn't go very far when your total income is only four or $500 a week. So what you're seeing is that people have to pay the rent mm -hmm. and the thing that gets squeezed is food. The thing that gets squeezed is anything that you can make um, a sacrifice on. Um, so that might be, that definitely is food. Um, that's one of the biggest issues that we see, particularly when um, families go without food so that they can feed their kids. That's really heartbreaking to see. I don't think anyone in New Zealand should be going hungry just so that they can put food on the table for their kids. We also see that people are squeezed on things like um, paying to go to the doctor, um, paying to heat their homes. They stay cold in winter because they just can't afford to run the heater. We're seeing that for superannuitants, for students, um, for beneficiaries, obviously, all of the people who are on that squeeze of income. What are the um, signs of the, the, the squeeze, the tension outside of the rent payments to show that things are getting worse? I've seen that demand for food parcels has significantly increased, but what other signs are you seeing that the squeeze is squirting out into areas of stress and other other areas? Mm. I think overall what we're seeing is that the squeeze is moving up the chain from the people who have been traditionally the most vulnerable, so beneficiaries, one-parent families, all the way up into what's now being called the squeezed middle class. And so these are people who have full-time um, jobs. They might have considered themselves as being able to get by two or three years ago, they're now facing that same squeeze um, and again facing those increased food costs that they just can't meet. So you've also called for the accommodation supplement to increase. Could you explain for us uh, how that works and why it's sort of frozen in time, which means that as rents go up, the pressure goes on to the renters. It's not borne by an increase in the accommodation mm. supplement. The amount of the accommodation supplement is calculated 
um, in a really case-by-case -case way. So it depends on how much you earn, obviously, your income, your assets, um, your accommodation costs, your family circumstances, how many kids you have at home, and of course where you live as well, because it wouldn't make sense to pay the same accommodation supplement to someone living in Auckland as someone perhaps living in Levin or Horofinua. Um, so it ranges um, between a maximum of 305 per week down to $70, and that depends of course on if you're in that high cost of living area, how many children you have. So it's a supplement which is paid to you that you then pay um, as part of your rent to your landlord. It's not paid directly to the landlord. It comes into your pocket along with um, whether you're on the benefit or the student allowance or the disability allowance. You receive it as part of your overall package from um, work and income or from StudyLink and then you pay it on to your landlord as part of your market rent. So that number between 70 and $305 a week, uh, how has that changed or not in the last six years or so? It hasn't been recalculated um, and I'm aware that the government has indicated they're undertaking a review of the accommodation supplement in part because those settings haven't changed for so long. This review is so long overdue um, given how much rents have increased in that same time. So if you are on the accommodation supplement and it doesn't meet your overall housing needs, you can't afford to make ends meet, you can also apply for what's called temporary additional support. As the name says, that's temporary. It's paid to you for up to 13 weeks and then you have to reapply for it. So it creates a lot more difficulty or strain for someone having to constantly reapply when their rental costs aren't likely to change over 13 weeks unless they have a magic wand. Do you have an idea of how much the accommodation supplement should increase to ensure that people aren't uh, paying more than that 30% of disposable income, for example? We'd need to see a bit more data about that. Um, and obviously, I really welcome the government doing that review to establish how much the accommodation supplement would need to increase by in order to meet those housing needs. But the fact that temporary additional support is currently being paid um, at potentially a rate, sorry, I had the data. Um, in 2020, the weekly amount of temporary additional support that was being paid was around five and a half, five and a five point seven million per week. That indicates to me, of course, that doesn't just cover housing costs, it can also cover cover other costs of living. But it does indicate to me that temporary additional support is picking up the slack because the accommodation supplement hasn't been adjusted in too long. So why is the Human Rights Commission looking into this? The reason that we're looking into this is that it is a human right to have a decent home. That's a human right in international human rights law. It's contained um, in international agreements that New Zealand governments have signed up to. So they have committed New Zealand in international law to deliver on these human rights promises. The right to a decent home covers a range of things which we've outlined in guidelines on the right to a decent home. A decent home should be affordable. It should be habitable, meaning that it's warm and dry. Um, you don't face cold and damp, which we know is a huge problem for New Zealand houses. 
it should be accessible, which means that you should be able to access a home that is fit for your purposes. Um, and there are other aspects to a decent home as well. So all of these aspects combined create this human right. And our inquiry aims to promote the fact that this is a human right in New Zealand. Too many governments have signed up to it, but not picked up on their obligations to deliver this in New Zealand. We're not saying that they have to go out and give everyone who needs one a free home overnight. We're also not saying that a decent home can be achieved completely overnight um, through market systems either. But what it means is that the government has to progressively realise this human right. Their policies all have to move us towards the position where everyone can enjoy the right to a decent home over time. We can't be going backwards or staying where we are. And unfortunately, the data we've got so far does show that New Zealand is going backwards. So who keeps us honest on this? I understand there was a, a UN um, uh, report from the rapporteur into, into housing. And uh, what did they find? What happens if we, if we don't meet our requirements? Mm. The UN, the special rapporteur, um, Leilani Faha, as it was back then, she visited New Zealand just before the COVID pandemic um, back in February 2020, which feels like a long time ago now. And she found, similarly to what the Commission is finding, massive breaches of the right to a decent home, particularly for vulnerable populations, particularly for Māori, which is a huge breach in itself of the treat of tatiriti. Um, so she reported that back to the Human Rights Council at the UN. Ultimately, New Zealand's government internationally has to own up and own that report. But at a national level, the Human Rights Commission is the independent organisation that can call out these human rights breaches and call for the government to make progress. So you're in the middle of the housing inquiry. What are you hoping to um, come up with at the end of the process? We're hoping to make clear findings where we consider that there have been breaches of this human right, um, i.e. where the government or other duty bearers have failed to meet their obligations. What we're also looking to provide are constructive recommendations on how we could move forward to a system that better honours the human right to a decent home. So in terms of those constructive recommendations, human rights are policy neutral, by which I mean we don't tell the government which economic path they should follow to meet their obligations of human rights. They can follow different economic paths. The road just has to go to the right place. And so our recommendations are about incorporating this human rights understanding into their policy making, reframing the idea of housing away from this concept of housing as an investment commodity and moving understanding back to the idea that housing isn't just a way to make money, it's actually a human right for everyone to live in a decent home. So the inquiry is going on. For those people listening to this podcast, how could they contribute to it and when can we expect um, uh, an assessment and perhaps some recommendations? Yeah, um, we're looking to release our findings 
um, over time rather than waiting until the end of the inquiry and releasing one big report. We know that a big report like that is really difficult to get into, um, difficult to absorb, and it's much more useful if there are findings released over time that people can engage with. Um, as I mentioned, our Measuring Progress series releases data about the different dimensions of the right to a decent home. So back in April, we released our data on habitability um, that again found that we were failing renters, particularly in terms of habitable housing. And we're about to launch our new website, which will create an opportunity for people to engage and submit online. We really welcome everyone to submit their experiences, their stories, or their suggestions for what they think um, we could do to move towards a right to a decent home. So when do you expect the inquiry to come out? Uh, our or finish? Our inquiry will be running through until around June next year, but our website will be up and running in the next few weeks. Um, so I encourage everyone to look out when that website goes live um, as a way to engage and share with us your thoughts. Also at the same time, the Waitangi Tribunal is doing its own inquiry into housing. How are you um, working alongside with them? The Waitangi Tribunal uh, Kopapa inquiry into housing um, is a fantastic inquiry. Um, it goes so deeply into the systemic breaches as opposed to um, one-off harms or breaches that the government has done. And we're very aware that the Waitangi Tribunal has the expertise about interpreting and applying tatidity, um, finding breaches of tatidity. Equally though, Tatiriti or Waitangi is New Zealand's foundational human rights document, so it would be remiss of the Commission not to account for the fact that the right to a decent home in Aotearoa must be grounded on Tatiriti or Waitangi. So where we consider that the government's housing policies or housing decisions are failing Māori and are essentially breaching their partnership obligations or other obligations under tatility, we'll also call that out um, in respectful collaboration or partnership with the Waitangi Tribunal. V. Blackwood, uh, thank you very much for um, coming on to the kaka. Thank you.